Today's Bible reading comes from Exodus chapter 2, and I'll be reading from verse 11 to 24. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and, live, and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the trough to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds, and he, he even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Ruel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with a man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Geshom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The, Egypt, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Thanks, Kevin. Like I said uh, at the beginning of the service, we are commencing our series today on Exodus that will take, take us through this term, to the end of this term. And there is, uh, I think we have this Sunday and next Sunday in Exodus. We'll do chapters 1 and 2 today, 3 and 4 next Sunday. And it's Mother's Day. And uh, on Mother's Day, we're going to have a special service focus on Mother's Day. So I encourage you to invite your mums if you're able to do that or... Invite your neighbours to come along. Charlotte is going to be our speaker in our morning services on Mother's Day. And then we resume the series on Exodus after that. Sometimes it's going to be a bit of a gallop. Uh, so I encourage you to read the stories, uh, the passages of scripture uh, ahead of time with us. We'll put in the bulletin or we'll let you know what's coming that way. Let's pray before I speak. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word, for your son and for your spirit. We ask now that you would help us by your spirit to understand your word as it reveals to us more of the Lord Jesus and more of his will for us. So Lord, speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Exodus can be looked at in all different sorts of ways. And one of the uh, most helpful ways is clearly... Um, to look at it theologically, to see what does this book teach us about God. Exodus is primarily about God, though it has one main human character, and that, of course, is Moses, unlike Genesis, which revolved around different characters, Abraham and uh, Noah and Jacob and, I and Joseph and Isaac and so on. 
But Moses is the one key human character in the book of Exodus. But behind Moses and through Moses, you will discover lots about God. For Exodus is God's story, God at work in our world. Another way you can look at Exodus is also to look at it as it reveals to us more and more of the person of the Lord Jesus. Because just as there are many parallels between Moses and Jesus. Can you hear that or is it just me? Just me? That's the feedback, foldback, that thing. Can you kill it? Thank you. For instance, Moses is born under special circumstances, so is Jesus. Moses is delivered and rescued at birth, so is Jesus. Uh, Jesus, Moses was born in Egypt, Jesus sojourns in Egypt. Just like Moses went through the Red Sea, and that's called a baptism in 1 Corinthians 10, so the Lord Jesus was baptised. That then follows for Moses 40, day, 40 years in the wilderness, and it's 40 days in the wilderness for the Lord Jesus. Moses went up on a mountain and got the law of God, the covenant, and the Lord Jesus went up on a mountain and gave us the law, the new law, the uh, Sermon on the Mount is what we call it. So there are many parallels. And in fact, uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration in the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus is transfigured before Peter, James and John, he has two visitors, Moses and Elijah. Significant that Moses was there. And they, Luke tells us, were actually talking to Jesus about his exodus. They use the word exodus, about his exit, about his coming death and resurrection. So as we read through, excuse me, the book of Exodus, we should also be looking for the Lord Jesus because all of scripture ultimately points to him. He is the Lamb of God, Passover, who was the one who took away the sin of the world. So we look for God. What does it teach us about God? We look for the Lord Jesus, but also... uh, The Apostle Paul, in an interesting chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, refers to several incidences out of the book of Exodus and out of that 40 years wandering. And in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 10, he says, These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So even Israel's experience, Moses' experience, and these biblical characters' experiences have been written down and recorded, selected... Um, and written as uh, warnings for us. So there are applications to come to us as we look at these stories as well. Um, Certainly in the book of Exodus, um, we have this wonderful unfolding of a God who is sovereign, who acts to save and to redeem, who certainly reminds us of the Lord Jesus. He is the God who is powerful, who... God who judges, as we'll come to with the plagues, but he's also the God who delivers and protects, who guides, who directs through his word, enters into a covenant, and who ultimately dwells with his people, as the Spirit of God dwells with us and in us. So we're going to race through chapter 1, I hope, and uh, maybe slow down in chapter 2. We'll wait and see if that's how it eventuates. Here we go. I encourage you to have your Bible and have it open, or your device, whatever you read the scriptures on. Verses 1 to 7 is the link for us with the book of Genesis. In fact, there are 14 books in the Old Testament that all begin with the word and. And. Many um, English translations don't include that word. The NIV certainly doesn't here. But the word, the book begins, 14 books begin with the word and because it links with a book that was before. It's one story. It all links together. It's God who is at work through the whole All of scripture, pointing us to the reality of who he is and to the person of the Lord Jesus. Well, verses 1 to 7 is that link, covers about 400 years of history. 
These are the names of the sons of Israel. Went down to Israel, uh, went down to Egypt with Jacob, and we have then a list of the patriarchs, and then ultimately we have about we're told in verse five about seventy numbered in all. And then, of course, you know the story: Joseph and his brothers that generation passed away. Note verse seven. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful over those four centuries, over those 400 years, exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. We are reminded that God is a God who keeps his word. That's exactly what God said to uh, Abraham. God said to him that he would uh, make him a blessing to all nations and God said that he would increase his numbers. He would multiply them. Well, we know from Exodus 12 and 38 that the number of the people of Israel who left Egypt was 600,000 men. That's not counting women and children. So we guesstimate that it's around about 2 million, 2.5 million people is now the size. 70 grown to a couple of million. And that's now the nation of Israel and God's people, whom he's going to work through and with and through them bring Jesus into the world. So... We jump over all of that history. The story continues. Israel, probably for the first part of the 400 years or so, dwelt in peace and prosperity and things were going lovely. Probably got to the point, from a human perspective, of forgot about uh, God's purposes and God's plan. And they were quite comfortable in Egypt and they didn't want to go to the promised land where Canaan and all those other bad people were living at this time, at that time. And so... God allows circumstances, verse 8 tells us, but a new king came to whom Joseph meant nothing. He came to power in Egypt. Didn't know anything about Joseph, didn't know anything about the history of it, didn't care about that. Probably a change of dynasty. And so this with new king coming, uh, he has a fear, which he outlines for us. The Israelites are too many. They're outnumbering us. And they're quite prolific in producing and multiplying. So he came up with a plan. Verse 10 tells us we must deal shrewdly with them or they'll become even more numerous. No fear. If war breaks out and they'll join our enemies, they'll fight against us. And the real fear? And then they will leave our country. He didn't want them to leave. That was the issue. He wanted the Israelites to stay and he wanted to use them for their uh, whatever skills and, uh, they brought to it. But as it will unfold in this chapter, he wanted to use them for forced labour. Uh, to help some building projects, but also with farming. So he has three goes. He has three-step strategy, and each one fails, because behind this pharaoh, God is at work, watching over his people, blessing them and letting them multiply over these four centuries. But behind this new pharaoh stands the evil one, who was opposed to God, opposed to God's plan and God's purposes. And so here comes this pharaoh, a tool in the hands of the evil one, Satan, who intends to prevent the deliverer coming into the world. That's the intention. So stage one, Pharaoh says, verse 11, so they put slave masters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labour. Verse 12 tells us the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. God protected. God continued to bless. Pharaoh's plan failed. Um, Here we see the hand of God continuing to work. Uh, and work his purposes out. And he still does that today. Even through difficult times, through the persecution of the church, church grows. Church is multiplied. Often throughout history, it's exactly what happens. So sometimes God allows the church to undergo difficulties, his people to undergo difficulties, in order to grow the kingdom. 
one of the issues we have in the affluent West is we've become very comfortable. And we, like the Israelites probably in Egypt before this difficulty came, is we're quite comfortable here and we're not really focused on God's purposes and God's plans. And so God sometimes will rearrange the circumstances of our life in order to nudge us and to motivate us. God is a God who keeps his promises. He's a God who works his plan. And even though Satan brings these taskmasters in with a view to hindering, to decreasing and controlling God's people, it backfires. God still even works through that. The more they were oppressed, the more they continued to grow. Just as an aside while we're on this point, let me just point out to you from this passage uh, this whole issue of God could have stopped the suffering, but he allowed it. And this is certainly a big topic and a big issue for us, but this passage gives us a little insight. It's not the whole story. It's not everything the Bible has to say about this issue of human suffering, uh, but it does give us some insight. And in this particular instance, God's people were suffering, and it's because of human sin, not their sin, but because the Egyptians, who are to blame in this instance, because they're sinning, they're doing the wrong thing. And sometimes we suffer because other people choose to do the wrong thing. God gives them free will, they choose to exercise it, and one of the consequences of that is people can get hurt. Certainly not outside God's control and or purposes, he can use that. Romans 8.28 reminds us that God is at work in all the circumstances of life to bring about his purposes, his good ends for those of us who love and follow him. Verse 12 reminds us that even though Israel was suffering, they continued to grow. So too, through our suffering, God uses that for us to grow, not physically in number, but spiritually in maturity. That God uses the difficult times to, to refocus us. That's certainly what I think he's doing with the, uh, the Hebrews, that he's refocusing them and he's helping them to be identified as his people, as a community of his people. A little bit like uh, Hitler back in uh, Germany made the, identified the Jews through various stages, but ultimately by branding them, you know, making them wear a yellow star or something. So the Egyptians are documented as having tattooed some of their foreign slaves, their foreign, those who forced into labour and work gangs and so on. There's documented historical stuff talking about how they tattooed them, marked them, sealed them with the mark of uh, Pharaoh. They belonged to him. Again, you see the hand, the tool, hand of Satan, the tool, the evil one behind. These are God's people. They're not Pharaoh's people. Pharaoh's attitude was, I want you to stay here and serve me, when God's purpose was, you're to serve him, to serve me. Pharaoh is clearly opposed to what God is doing. And God was probably also, through allowing his people here to go through this difficult time, changing the desires of their hearts weaning them from their um, commitment to and attachment to the people of, uh, to the land of Egypt. A land of peace and prosperity for them, but now it's a land of difficulty. They probably didn't have a desire before to go to the promised land, but now they can't wait to get out. They want to leave. God certainly does that with us, doesn't he? He allows difficulties to come to change the desires of our heart. That, well, even in the ultimate, uh, he has given us uh, life, but one day we will die, and when we die, we'll go to heaven. But I don't know anybody who wants to go to heaven straight away. Anybody? Most of us want to stay. We want to still live. And even when we get sick and go to hospital, we continue to fight for life. It's God-given, and it's built in us. But sometimes through difficulties and pain, you get to that point where you go, you know what, 
time out, I've had enough. I want to go home. Um, I don't like this world anymore and all the suffering that's in it. I just want to go to be with the Lord Jesus and to peace and to be in heaven with him. So that's what God's doing with his people here. Using this difficulty to change their desires, to give them not just a closer knit community, but also a desire to be um, more in line with God's plan, purposes and will. That was the first step. <clears throat> give them taskmasters, put them in work gangs, get them to build cities, labour on the land and so on. Farm. Second step is things go from bad to worse. This new strategy is turning from slavery to slaughter. It's a private strategy. It's Pharaoh summons in verses 15 and 16 the Egyptian Hebrew, the Hebrew midwives. The king of Egypt said to these Hebrew midwives whose names are given to us, Shipra and Pua, meaning beautiful and uh, splendid, because it's a beautiful and a splendid thing that they are about to do. Pharaoh says to them, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. Strange policy. You'd think if you'd want to stop the number of children increasing, you would kill the girls. They're the ones who produce babies. But he's wanting to stop the boys. Now, my guess is there's a couple of reasons, not only the military aspect, but I think it's also the evil one behind trying to stop the deliverer who was a boy coming into the world. Anyway, that's Pharaoh's instructions to these midwives, and we are wonderfully told in verse 17, the midwives, however, feared God. They didn't fear Pharaoh, they feared God. That's what Jesus says to us as well. Fear him who has authority over body and soul. Don't fear people who can only kill the body. Rather, fear God. He can destroy both body and soul in hell, Jesus says. Fear God. And because they feared God, they did not do what the king of Egypt told them to do. They let the boys live. Here is civil disobedience. I thought the Bible taught us that we have to be submitting uh, to those in authority over us. Yes, it does teach that. But the Bible also teaches, and this illustrates it, that sometimes it's appropriate for us in a respectful way, not a defiant, rebellious way, but nonetheless, in a biblical way, to submit to a higher authority, that we disobey the law of the land or whatever in order to be obedient to God. That's certainly what Daniel does and it's certainly what the apostles do in Acts chapter 5. Should we obey God or man? Well, you should obey God and to do it in a way that is still honouring to those who are in authority over you. So the midwives feared God, didn't do what the king said. Then it gets worse. The king summons them in and says, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And they then lie to him. Are they lying? Probably. They said, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Well, it could be true. It's likely they're stretching the truth a little bit. So is it okay to tell lies? Well, notice they're not bearing false witness with a view to harming anybody. They're, in fact, not telling the full truth because they are wanting to protect life and acting out of love. This, a lot of ink, a lot of words and paper, stories and commentaries have been written over this passage and sermons preached uh, all throughout the centuries, all the way back to Augustine and through the church, you know, the, reform, the reformers, Calvin, etc., and a lot of them line up on the side of saying the Hebrew women here do a wrong thing. Lying is a sin and you shouldn't lie. Well, that's one conclusion you can draw. Um, there are certainly other instances, Rahab with the spies and so on, where there are examples of where 
Sometimes we are put in a situation where you're choosing between doing that which is both are wrong, but one is less wrong than the other. You can work it out. In the first service, I said, I think it's okay for those women to stretch the truth a little bit here. And people have gone away now to the coffee shops and having coffee and they'll be talking about me, how I think it's okay to lie, I'm sure. I asked the question, verse 20, what did God think about it? Well, we're not told exactly what the Lord thought, but we are told in verse 20, God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, verse 21, he gave them families of their own. God rewarded them. God blessed them. Well, the passage does say he blessed them because they feared him. It's not necessarily him blessing them because they lied to Pharaoh. Many commentators and preachers say the women should have told Pharaoh the truth and then let the pieces fall where they may. You can talk about that amongst yourselves. I think I know what I would do. Um, and if you want to know, you pay me 20 bucks and I'll tell you. <laughs> this plan of Pharaoh didn't work. First, give them forced labour to try and keep them uh, preoccupied to stop the numbers. doesn't work, they prosper. Let's privately call the midwives in and secretly, let's just assassinate the baby boys when they're born. That doesn't work either. Third plan, this one's public, verse 22. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all of his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you, the people, must throw into the Nile. Feed him to the crocodiles. But let every girl live. Again, you get that strange, why is it the boys, not the girl? Well, that's the background uh, to this uh, incredible story of deliverance. Here are God's people, had been in Egypt for 400 years, like God told them. He told Abraham in Genesis 15 that your people are going to go, and for 400 years they'll be in Egypt, they'll become enslaved and oppressed, but I will multiply them and I will bring them out. Genesis 46, you have Joseph, I think it is, who reminds the people of Israel that God will take you out, and when you go out and then take me with you, my body with you. The people of God knew what God's plan was, the big picture, but maybe they'd gotten off track a little bit. Well, into this oppressive situation now, chapter 2, we have um, the deliverer being born um, under unusual circumstances. A man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. She became pregnant for the third time. She already had a daughter, Miriam. She already had a son, Aaron, who was now three years of age and born before the decree of Pharaoh to kill all the baby boys. But after the decree of Pharaoh, that all baby boys must be killed, she falls pregnant again for the third time, and she gives birth to a son, Moses. When she saw that he was a fine child, what does that mean? A fine child. All babies are fine, aren't they? Well, there was something special about this one. In Acts 7, I think it's Stephen says, he was not an ordinary child. Um, Probably he was as gifted as my granddaughter, Marnie, is my suspicion. There was something about him that made them suspicious or aware that God's going to do something with this one. So she hid him for three months, it says. Marnie's three months, just over now. So it's easy for me to identify a little bit. Because up until now, she's been reasonably quiet. Not totally quiet, but reasonably quiet. It's easy for some children for the first three months that they are quiet, but now she's focused, 
Now she's becoming a little bit more active. Now she's awake for longer during the day and playing more. And I think that's what young Moses would have been doing. By about the third month, he's becoming a little bit more active, a little bit more energetic, a little bit harder to keep it quiet. And so she comes up with a plan. She placed the child in a basket and she placed the basket in the Nile River, which is what the Pharaoh told her to do, isn't it? It's just a little bit different. It's a bit defiant. Again, she's being obviously not obeying the Pharaoh because she fears God as well. She placed the child in a basket. She covers it with tar and pitch. Exactly the same words used of Noah's Ark. It's a parallel between the deliverer is born and preserves and there's a new stage, a new part of the plan of salvation coming. She placed him in. And as she placed him carefully in the basket, so she also placed the basket carefully amongst the reeves. She didn't just put him in the basket and then you know, push him out and say, good luck. She rather placed him amongst the, the reeds where he wouldn't be moving too far. And then she had instructed his sister, Miriam, her daughter, to watch. Watch from a distance. And I think there's a bit of human planning going on here, but again, you have the hand of God. His fingerprints are all over this story. Just as God used the two midwives to frustrate the purposes of Pharaoh, so now here is God using another woman um, to preserve the life of the deliverer. Um, the location of where she places the baby, the timing of when she did it, that's when Pharaoh's daughter is going to come down to the river to bathe. Whether that's for religious purposes or her own personal hygiene, we're not told, but the timing of it probably happened that time every day. And so you just get this marvellous, um, the circum God working through the circumstances of our lives, and he still does it today. Pharaoh's daughter spots the basket. She sends one of her girls over to go and get it. She goes and gets it. When she brings it back, she opens it up and goes, what's Moses doing? Crying. It's normal for kids to cry. <clears throat> but it's through him crying that it touches her heart. And here is Pharaoh's daughter, who is now going to be disobedient to her father's edict, instructions, and she, in turn, is going to preserve the life of the deliverer. Then Miriam turns up. Would you like me to go and find one of the Hebrew women so she can nurse, breastfeed this little baby? Oh, that's a good idea, she said. So off she went. She gets mum, Jochebed, brings her back. And look at verse 9. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby, nurse him for me, and I will pay you. <laughs> Here is God, brings the deliverer into the world to achieve his purposes. Here is Pharaoh standing to oppose what God is doing. What does God do? Not only brings Moses into the world, not only preserves and protects him, but actually gets him raised under the very nose of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh was actually paying for the deliverer. And Exodus doesn't tell us, but it certainly Stephen does in Acts chapter 7, that for the next 40 years, Moses will be in the palaces of uh, Egypt and he will be educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he will become great in word, eloquent and in deed. He would have been trained in certain skills, probably military skills certainly, but others as well. God's purpose is being worked out in the circumstances of our life. Take this baby, nurse him for me, and I will pay you. How about that? So the woman took the baby, nursed him. And what did she do while she was nursing little Moses? How long did she nurse him for? Probably a significant amount of time. I don't know, over a year. And during all of that, she'd be praying, singing, speaking and when uh, pharaoh's daughter got the basket and opened it up and said oh this is one of the hebrew children how did she know he was a hebrew child 
Is it Cecil B. DeMille who did the movie on Moses, the Ten Commandments or something? Well, in that story, when the daughter opens, Pharaoh's daughter opens the basket, there's a little uh, maroon and, and white cloth, the colour of the tribe of Levi, an Israel colour. That's how she knew. And that's not it. How'd she know? What do the Hebrews do to all little baby boys when they're eight days old? Circumcised him. That's how she knew. Being obedient to God's covenant and God's instructions. And God moved in her heart, Pharaoh's daughter's heart, to care for and raise her son, her adopted son. She named him Moses. Why? Because I drew him out of the water. Moses, to draw out. His mission is in his name. Moses, to draw out. And that's what he will do. He will draw Israel out of Egypt. Jesus' mission is in his name. You'll call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Another parallel. Moses is 40 years growing up in the uh, palaces and is educated in all those ways. Now we come to the part that Kevin read to us. One day, when Moses has grown up, he's now 40. If you read Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24, 25 and 26, you'll get an insight into Moses' actual motivation of his heart and the words, the thinking processes he went through. How he knew he was a Hebrew, he knew he wasn't Egyptian and he rejects all of the glory, the pleasures and the treasures of Egypt and he chose to identify with and accept the sufferings of his people. He chose to identify with. It's a great passage to read and to meditate upon. Moses is now 40, he goes out and it happens three times in this story. It's interesting, I'm assuming Moses is the one who selected this, is the author of Exodus and he chooses to tell us about his birth and then nothing. And then at the age of 40, he chooses to tell us about an incident where there was a fight between an Egyptian and a Hebrew, and he kills the Egyptian. And then he'll tell us about when he fled to Midian, how he protected uh, the women uh, from the other shepherds, and that he got married. That's about it. He doesn't tell us anything else for the first 80 years of his life. It's selected. So there's a reason for why this is here. Let's see what we can learn from it and derive from it ourselves. Like I said, Moses goes out, sees this Egyptian beating um, one of the Hebrews, and it says, Moses looked this way and that. What he was about to do, he knew was wrong. Even though he was a prince of Egypt, even though he was of royal status and dressed accordingly, that did not excuse or allow him for these sorts of privileges. He was to take another person's life. His motivation was, Acts chapter 7, is he thought the Hebrew people will now understand that I am their deliverer, that God has raised me up to come and to deliver them from the Egyptians. But unfortunately, what Moses is doing here is he has appointed himself. Yes, he is the deliverer that God raised up. Yes, he is the deliverer that God was preparing. But there's a timing issue. And he gets ahead of God's time. This is self-motivated, this is self-directed, this is out of his own flesh. And because it's driven by what he thinks should be happening and not waiting on God, he makes a blunder, a significant blunder, to the point where there's now going to be a delay in God's program for 40 years while he's off in Midian. And as one person said, when you act in the flesh, 
as we follow the Lord Jesus. If we do the same thing, we make our decisions and we, we initiate things ourselves not being directed by the Lord and not being submissive to his will and not running it past him or wise and godly counsels, there will always be something you've got to hide. If you act out of the flesh, there'll always be an issue and there'll be something you have to cover up, something to hide. For here, it's Moses got to bury a body in the sands of Egypt, energised by his flesh, not waiting on God and so running ahead Initially, he probably felt good, had a good night's sleep, but it would result in this sense of failure because next day he experiences rejection by God's people. So these two Hebrew people fighting, your brothers, why are you trying to hurt each other? What are you going to do? You're going to kill me too like you killed the Egyptian? <gasps> How did you hear about that? He discovered that people gossip, people talk about things, and now he flees. One of the things we can learn from this is uh, maybe that's where you're at in your life at the moment. You need to not take things into your own hands. You need to invite and let God be in control and let God work whatever it is going on to work that out. To cease and to know that he is God. To surrender to him and him working his purpose out. Let God handle it. That doesn't mean that we just take a passive position, but it does mean we take a submissive position. So here is Moses. He flees. He flees to the land of Midian, uh, which are blood-related, Genesis 25, to uh, Abraham. And so there is a connection there. And these people are followers of Yahweh. They believe as the one true God. And when he gets there, sits by a well. And during the course of the day, seven daughters of Ruel come to feed their flock. And they'd been in a situation where they'd been being abused and it happened regularly, um, on a regular basis. And Moses this time intervenes. And he this time noticed it's with a little bit more restraint. He doesn't kill them, he just drives them off. And surprisingly, we're also told that he uh, has got a servant heart. God is preparing him to be the right one. Um, Moses came to their rescue and watered their flocks, as in verse 17. And they, the girls, when they're reporting to Dad, said, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. They were surprised. A, an Egyptian, B, a man, doing something for these women. The other men, the other shepherds, had only given them trouble. So here is Moses demonstrating some servant-heartedness, um, also protecting. Um, Moses... Uh, demonstrating and working out what God was doing in his life. Uh, one author, one commentator says this, Moses stooped to serve and by learning to serve, he was learning to lead. For all God's leaders are servants. That's a true word. God's timing. <coughs> Moses will spend the next 40 years in Midian. Located in a wilderness situation where God is undoubtedly still preparing him. But sadly for Moses, here is this significant leader, well-educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, now in Midian, now married, now with two sons. This chapter mentions one. Chapter 18 tells us there's another son, Eliezer. He has these two sons and he is now a shepherd, which must have been humbling for him and difficult because he was raised in the courts of the Egyptians and they didn't like shepherds. They thought it was unclean. 
But here is God now humbling this man, continuing to shape him. And over the course of 40 years, God's people are still suffering and God is still working his purposes out in this man's life. Though he failed and failed significantly, God still had a plan and a purpose for him. So too for us. We may have failed. We may have stumbled. But God still knows and sees. God still has a purpose and a plan even for us and wants us to be obedient and to work and walk with him. So here is Moses in solitude, now engaged in humble service and God in the process of preparing him. D.L. Moody said, and I think helpfully, this is, uh, I find this helpful, um, that Moses' life can be divided into three lots of 40. From ages 1 to 40, he's in Egypt and he's in the palaces being educated. From 40 to 80, he's in Midian, uh, being a shepherd uh, and never advancing, never getting his own flock, never buying his own piece of land or farm. He just continues to work for his father-in-law. Stays that way for four decades, 40 years. And the third lots of 40 is from 80, where he has the burning bush experience and the call of God on his life to return to Egypt. And then leading Israel out of Egypt and for 40 years leading them in the wilderness. 40, 40, 40. Theo Moody writes this. The first 40 years of his life, Moses uh, was thinking that he was somebody. And the next 40 years of his life, he was learning that he was a nobody. And in the last 40 years of his life, Moses was discovering what God can do with a nobody. It's a good insight, I think. That God takes us, prepares us, it certainly did with Moses and us. God is at work in the circumstances of our life. He is sovereign. Sometimes he allows things to get more difficult, but he knows and he is aware. This chapter ends by saying that Pharaoh died and that God's people groaned and prayed. They cried out to the Lord. And the passage says that God heard, God remembered his covenant that he gave with Abraham. God saw their situation and he knew he was concerned for them. He knew them. So God hears us, remembers his promises and the covenant we have with him. He sees what we're going through and he is concerned for us. I finish with Psalm 34 verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to our cry. The eyes of the Lord are on you if you follow the Lord Jesus. And his ear is attentive to your cry. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are the sovereign one. We thank you for your plan of salvation, that you're the God who was at work in the world and that you are committed to um, achieving your plan of honouring and exalting your son, the Lord Jesus, and that you've invited us and involved us. Help us, Lord, to cooperate with you Help us to keep our eyes on you and our ear attentive to your voice that we might walk in obedience with you, not running ahead, not being energised by our own flesh, but rather, Lord, waiting on you and responding in full obedience and submission. We pray that you would enable us by your spirit to walk with Jesus in the days of this week. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear you at work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.